Uh, good morning. We are uh, a people who've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. We are being sanctified, which uh, is a fancy word for being transformed and changed as the Spirit works that transformation in us. And we are sent out in just a few minutes as a people on a mission to proclaim the welcome of God the Father into His kingdom through Jesus. And so it's our joy to glorify God as we gather together today. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone from our strike team can put one in your hands. We're working through a series of messages designed to give a a glimpse, if you will, into the heart of who we are as a local church, centered around what we believe. The core doctrines and core practices as a local church here at River City. And while we cannot fit the entirety of these big ideas into nice, neat little 35-minute packages, although we're going to try to do that, the, the bigger idea is to kind of, uh, like an assessor, put a, put a flag in the ground, right? Have you, ever, have you ever seen those little colored flags, blue, yellow, red, all around town in a construction area? You want to put in a fence and the guy comes out with a little beep tool and puts the flags down? What he's doing there is he's saying, I'm putting a flag here so you know that there's much more going on beneath the surface. So these messages are intended to serve as that. (laughs) They're flags in the ground to say, what's standing up is something you need to know. And underneath there, there's a wealth of stuff, good things and theology and scripture and history that's underneath that. Maybe that analogy is helpful to you. Maybe it's not. We're going to talk about helpful and not helpful analogies a bit today. But today we're looking at the nature of God and specifically the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is a concept for which there is no good analogy. In fact, all of the analogies ultimately lead to a misunderstanding of God if we follow them through to their logical ends. But we'll get into that in just a second. One last thing you're not going to be able to grab a Bible and look into the index for the word Trinity and then find the chapter and verse cross-reference. And I'm going to argue that's a good thing. Because what we'll see, hopefully, in this snapshot is that all of the Scripture, from the very first words in Genesis all the way through to the end, give us a picture of a God who is one and three. Not just a particular verse Pulled out of context. And this is important because the doctrine of the Trinity, God as one in essence and three in persons, affects and informs every aspect, every aspect of Christian life and faith. And part of what makes our faith distinct from every other world religion and every other concept of God. And so that's our big idea today embracing the triune God. Embracing God as three in one leads us to true worship and leads us to life on mission. So we'll start with the definition and we'll look at where those parts of our definition come from in the scriptures. And we will be looking at a handful of scriptures today. I will let you know where, uh, when we get there and many of them will be on the screen as well. But we're going to start with this definition. I, I stole it unashamedly from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He says this, uh, in terms of a definition of the Trinity, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, 
And there is one God. So when we speak of God, we are speaking of a God who is three in one. Now, I know already you're going, all right, let me get my brain around that. So here we go. Open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, if you would. And in verse 13, we see the narrative of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is on the scene in human flesh. John the Baptist, who was prophesied as the forerunner to the Messiah, the one who would proclaim the coming of God's Messiah, was baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins in the Jordan River. Jesus comes in verse 13, says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, this may be possibly the clearest picture of the three distinct persons of the Trinity in history in real time. God the Father dwelling in the heavens unseen, speaks directly to God the Son coming up out of the water. And down from the sky apparently comes God the Spirit resting on Jesus in the form of a dove to bless him. Seeing three in Matthew chapter three is pretty clear. But I'm going to argue that we don't want to build our entire Trinitarian theology on this passage alone because God isn't simply three, God is one, right? If you want, flip forward a little bit to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Jesus is being tested by the religious leaders of the day. And he's asked, which of these commandments are the most important? Which of God's commands from the law are most important? And in verse 29, Jesus says this. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus starts by affirming that the most important thing, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is known as the Shema. It's part of a, uh, the, the Jewish prayer that just declares regularly, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. So there's no disputing that God is one. I feel a little bit like in The Princess Bride. Are you familiar with the scene when he's like, clearly I can't choose the poison in front of me. But you would have known that, so maybe I have switched the poison, so clearly I can't choose the poison in front of you. And he goes on and on for about five minutes like that, right? I feel like that. Clearly God is three, and we all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also God is one. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's true too. But clearly he's three. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. This is where we end up. But this isn't just a, like a New Testament versus Old Testament argument, which sometimes it's framed that way. 
Well, in the Old Testament, hero Israel, the Lord our God, uh, the Lord is one. So God must be kind of more one in the Old Testament. Then we don't see the three till later. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. All the way at the beginning. Because if you were having a conversation with an Orthodox Jew or, or maybe a, a devout Muslim, the argument might be, okay, I, I see what you're saying in the New Testament, but, but according to the Old, God seems to be one. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Look at that again. God said, the, the word there for God is the kind of the general term for God, Elohim. He said, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, in our likeness. And then in verse 27, he says, so God created man in his, singular, own image. Now, there are two schools of thought on this. Some say, well, God, in general, might be speaking to the heavenly hosts that are around and saying, see, we're all cool and heavenly, and so we're going we're gonna to create something uh, kind of less than that and call it man, and that's going to be good. I think that falls a little flat in reading the rest of Scripture. I believe God is speaking here within himself, in the tri-unity of the Godhead, saying, let us... And then when he creates man, he creates man in his image. From the beginning, I think God was revealing himself in this triune way. Here's another approach that I found super helpful this week. Exodus chapter 33. I know we're jumping around a lot. Go to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus 33, Moses is interceding for the people of God. He's pleading before God that God would be merciful because the people are not smart. And he's, Lord, don't, don't abandon us. We, we need you. He's praying that God would not cut them off, that God would remain present among them. And in verse 17 of Exodus 33, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. God is re- responding to Moses. I will do what you have asked. Moses says, please, uh, in verse 18, please show me your glory. In verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will procl- and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, verse 20, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Moses is pleading, Lord, show me your glory. And God's like, okay, I will show you my goodness. I will proclaim my name to you. But if you see me, you will die.
there is a way in which we can't look upon God because we will die. But if you scroll back just a couple of verses, follow your finger back to verse 10 of the same chapter, it reads this, And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, uh, God uh, led his people by day by a pillar of cloud in the wilderness and by night a pillar of fire, and the cloud would rest in front of the tent. When the cloud was standing there, the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door, at the entrance to his own tent. Verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. How can that be? Six verses later, we're told, you look at God, you die. And yet God is speaking to Moses face to face. Anyone else confused yet? Like, which one is it? Can you look at God's face or can't you? I've got one more for you. Turn your Bible, probably a page, maybe two, over to Exodus chapter 35. God's people are building the tabernacle the place of worship for God's people in the wilderness where God would dwell amongst his people. And in verse 30 of chapter 35, we read this. Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the, the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with the Spirit of God. Underline that phrase. With skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship. And then in verse 1 of chapter 36, just a few verses later, every craftsman whom the Lord has put skill. See, here in Exodus, in chapter 33 through 35, we are seeing something about the individual persons of the one God. That there is always a person who is unseen and unseeable because he cannot be seen. Looking at his face means you are destroyed. But there is also always a person who is seen. The person who meets directly face to face with God's people. And there is always a person who is spirit, who lives and dwells in and among God's people. See, I think the argument can be made that God is triune from the beginning. This is how God always has been and how he has always operated throughout time and throughout recorded history in the scriptures. And because we let Scripture interpret Scripture and inform how we understand Scripture, we must then start to formulate a definition where God is three and God is one. Now, wade with me for just one more minute into some deeper waters because I think here we find some help for our tiny brains. And when I speak of our tiny brains, I'm speaking of my tiny brain. When we speak of God being one, we're talking about God's essence what it means to, to be God, his divine nature. And that scripture is pretty clear that that is a singular essence. And when we speak of God being three, we're talking about God's person. Or the theological term is hypostasis. There's another help I found um, from what has come to be known as the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius lived uh, from the late 290s or so until the year 373. 
He was a strong defender of what is known as Nicene Christianity, coming out of the first Nicene Council. It's all church history stuff, which is nerdy and awesome, and you should read about it. Um, What we would argue is Orthodox and Biblical Christianity, Nicene Christianity. And during the 4th century, as the gospel was expanding all throughout the known world, there were many debates and false ideas about Jesus. His divinity, his resurrection. And Athanasius was one of many faithful men in history used of God to contend for and preserve the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, scholars are in pretty solid agreement that Athanasius didn't write this creed. It was likely composed later, probably the 5th century. Maybe the earliest manuscripts they still have are from the 8th century. But the reason it's called the Athanasian Creed is because it's consistent with the writing and teaching of Athanasius. And um, he was a staunch defender of the Trinitarian God of the Bible. I set that all up because there's a few lines from it that are particularly helpful, and they'll be on the screen. He says this, The Christian faith is this, that we worship One God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding or confusing the persons, nor dividing the divine substance. For there is one person of the Father, and another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. I think that's cool. The majesty and and glory, the the substance of the divine nature is one. It cannot be divided. It cannot be added to or taken away from. None of the persons of the Trinity make God more godlike. And the person of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit is each fully God and there is one God. That's the... The, the operation, the definition we're working with here. And I know it, it might seem complex, but I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, this is how God has revealed himself. And his revelation of himself and his plan for redemption. So if we miss God as he's defining himself, then we're in danger of missing the gospel of redemption. And we end up worshiping God falsely, or we end up worshiping a different God entirely. Further, we can end up missing the gospel and find ourselves believing and practicing an inferior or false gospel. Because false understanding ultimately leads to false worship. It just does. But true understanding leads to true worship. And this is where the analogies we've often heard about the Trinity start to fall apart. Maybe you've heard some of these. The Trinity is like water. Or the Trinity is like a star. Or maybe the Trinity is like uh, a three-leaf clover, which was St. Patrick's analogy. Right? Have you heard some of those? Right? And you're like, okay, maybe it helps me understand a little bit. We're gonna, I'm going to unpack why they're all terrible here in a second. Um, how water can be liquid, ice, and vapor. Right? Let's look at the water one for a second. Water is water, but it can exist in these different forms. This is just a form of what's called modalism, which is a heresy that outlines that God is not three distinct persons, but merely just takes on different forms or different modes at different times in history for different reasons. And in fact, the church council looked at this understanding and struck it down in 381, the Council of Constantinople, to say that is inconsistent with the God of the Bible. Because we know that 
God the Father sits enthroned forever. And while the Father sits enthroned, Jesus the Son walked the earth. And Jesus the Son is now risen and seated at the right hand of the Father who sits enthroned forever. And the Holy Spirit is living and dwelling inside the people of God. They're not taking turns at being God. Right? So the water analogy, bad analogy. Sorry, if you really like that analogy and I have now kicked your proverbial puppy, I'm kind of sorry, but I'm not because it's not a good analogy. Maybe you've heard this one. Maybe someone has explained to you, well, the Trinity is kind of like the sun, right? Where you have the star itself and then you have the light and the heat. But this leads to a different problem because the light and the heat are products of the star and are not the star itself, which is another uh, ancient heresy called Arianism, where, where, where the Son and the Spirit aren't co-equal and co-majestic with the Father, they are just creations of the Father. And that's a problem. In fact, this is the theological framework for modern-day Jehovah's Witness theology, that, that the Son and the Spirit are creations of the Father, not co-eternal God not divine. But that cannot be because John's gospel tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and that nothing that is created was created without Him. So that's a bad analogy. And maybe this one, maybe you've heard it as an egg. You know, we have the yolk and the white and the shell. Or in this case, the, the, the St. Patrick one. All the icons of St. Patrick have him holding a three-leaf clover because he liked, apparently, I don't know if that's true or not, but he liked to explain the Trinity using that idea. And that's a problem because each leaf isn't the entirety of the clover, right? It's just a part of. So you have each part making up, in a sense, a third of the plant, so the Father and the Son and the Spirit are no longer distinct persons who are fully God, but are different parts of God. This is often referred to as partialism. It's like you need all three-thirds to make a whole. But that's a bad analogy. And these are all bad analogies. And the problem with them is not that they're bad analogies. I make up bad analogies all the time. Like, I think in analogies. If you've talked to me long enough, I'll probably make up an analogy in a conversation we'll have this afternoon. Because it's just how my brain works. But the problem with these analogies, is we try to conceive of who God is, is that ultimately they lead us to a picture that is not true about who God is. He's not a part. The Spirit's not just a, a part of the Godhead. The Spirit is fully God. Right? Now, the, the image here, there's an image here that is probably the closest thing we have to something that's helpful, where it starts to describe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all showing how they are God and how they are not one another. So they're, 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 in, they're distinct persons, and yet they share in a divine essence. The problem with this is there's still too many circles. There's still a, there's a fourth circle around the word God, so that's confusing. There's not four of them. Right? So even this picture, which I think is probably the best one we have, is like, eh, not so good. Right? 
The, the only good thing that these analogies can do, or even a picture like this, is it, it helps, it does help in one area. It helps open the door for us to understand with our puny minds that we could possibly conceive of God being three in one. Possibly. But their logical conclusions are kind of bad, so, so my encouragement is not to rely on them because you end up with a fragmented God in some fashion. But if we strive to, to define and understand God for who he is, who he's described himself to be in the scriptures as a whole, for example, walking through Exodus 30 through, 33 through 35 together, it helps us and ultimately leads to better and deeper and more true worship because we're seeing God for who he is. Uh, there's a guy named Mark Jones. He's written a couple of really good books. I, I recommend uh, the two uh, that I've read of his. Um, one of them in the book, God Is, he says this, The true and living God is too much for us to bear, to handle, to conceive, to adore, to know, to trust, to understand, and to worship. The incomprehensible one is simply too much for us in every conceivable way. And you might be thinking, that is true. Because it is. God is completely other, and we recognize we are finite. We have limits. We are constrained by the capacities of our own logical minds. And yet, we're invited to know this God. It's kind of like um, a bright spring or winter, like late winter, early spring morning when you, you wake up and you look outside and the sun hurts your eyes, right? When we start to see God for who he is, no, we can't box it up all nice and neat. Yes, it hurts our brains a little, but I'm willing to bet that what's happening, what I've been praying all week would happen in my own heart and in our hearts as we dig into this a little bit, is that more than being overwhelmed, that your hearts would swell as your vision of God for who he is expands and that he looks greater and more majestic than he did a few minutes ago. That the God who holds the universe in balance, the Father who none can see, who dwells in unapproachable light, the scriptures say, who has planned redemption for us, more than that, that the Son, God the Son, condescends, which means He comes down where He doesn't need to be and speaks with us face to face. More than that, as He's taking on our humanity so that He might accomplish the redemption set forth by the Father, conquering sin and death and rising again in glorious resurrection. And more than that, we are now living in this part of the mysterious reality that the Spirit of God actually lives in us. Uniting us to one another and uniting us to God. The Father initiates and elects. The Son accomplishes and mediates. The Spirit applies and unites. This is gloriously good news. Our gospel is a Trinity-shaped gospel. And as author and Professor Brandon Smith uh, writes in an article that I read, which punched me in the face, Monday morning, 8.58 a.m., the Trinity should not become a dusty Sunday school fact, but a fresh, everyday source of wonder. Punch. 
Not just a dusty thing like, oh, I think I get that. Great, put it on the shelf. No, no, a, a fresh, everyday source of wonder. So as the triune God reveals himself and his glorious work of redemption to us more and more, our awe of him increases more and more, and thus our worship of him increases more and more. So I have a couple of questions. If, if you're asking, why does this matter? Because engaging in deep searching and thinking about God doesn't seem worth the trouble. Can I challenge you to consider that perhaps your desire to know God is too weak? We don't always have to dive into the deep end of theological study. But the reality is that if our desire to truly know God is too shallow, our worship will be shallow. And if your brain swells when we talk about this kind of thing, but your heart doesn't, when thinking about the depths of God as He's revealed Himself, can I challenge you to consider that you might be in danger of your heart growing hard even as your understanding expands. Because you're not seeing the majesty and glory of God for what it is, you're seeing it as an exercise. See, as we grow in our knowledge of God, as we walk closely with Him, our faith will, by His grace, inevitably deepen, and, we will, and our worship will increase, not just because of what He's done for us, which is amazing, by the way, but just for who He is. And so it fuels true worship and is the foundation for our lives on mission. This is the last piece. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has risen from the dead. Has gathered his disciples to commission them to carry the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And in verse 19, you've probably heard this before. Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All three persons of the Trinity are engaged in the commission to proclaim the gospel, to baptize and to teach. And here's a little interesting detail. This ministry is to be done in the name. The singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. The three persons of the triune Godhead are in perfect unity in the mission of the advancement of the kingdom, in the proclamation of the gospel, even in the midst of their unique personal roles in the work of redemption. So as we... Think about God who is and the mission to which we've been called. We will be less and less able to separate or fragment our lives into sacred and secular. The spiritual parts of our lives and the regular parts of our lives. There are no portions of our lives that are off limits to God's reign. I will say that again. There are no portions of our lives that are off limit to God's reign. We speak of our new identity in Christ Jesus when we come to faith in Him. Right? That, that God, the Holy Spirit, unites us to God the Son, Christ Jesus. Which is an awesome reality. And, 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 and when you plumb the depths of that reality, it has huge implications for how we live. 
But in uniting us to Christ Jesus, we are united to all who God is. United to His purposes and to His mission. And God is undivided in His plan of redemption. See, we are prone to fragmentation, to compartmentalization. We want to we separate out and cleanly articulate all the little boxes in our lives. Some of you are better at this than others. But the perfect unity of God in divine trinity shows us something as we walk and live as his disciples. That in our different roles and spheres of influence, the different facets of our identities as students, as husbands or wives, as neighbors, as as employees or employers, as white or black, as those with desk jobs or those who get their hands dirty, as someone who might be introverted or outgoing or artistic or analytical, all of these facets are designed by God to be engaged in the offering of worship to God in spirit and in truth for who He is and what He has done. And... All are designed and purposed by God for the mission of proclaiming the gospel. The Father's design, the Son's accomplishment, and the heart-transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So my prayer for us, as we continue to grow in our knowledge of who God is, that we would know Him as He is, and that it would blow the categories a little bit off of our finite minds, that it would spur, spur us on to more humble and passionate worship because God is greater than we comprehend. And that it would set us loose in our gospel witness for God's glory. That others might come to have their minds blown by the glory and majesty and awesomeness of the God who is three in one. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that although you are far above us, that you are other And we are finite. That you make yourself known to us. You've given us your word. And you've given us the spirit. To teach us, to instruct us, to comfort us, to guide us. Would you help us see with fresh eyes who you are. And you would loose our hearts in worship and gratitude afresh for seeing you for who you are. Encourage our hearts as we come to the communion table that we might proclaim the glory that we see on display in Jesus to save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.